0: The House of Compassionate Sheriffs by Michael Bishop In the Port Erinani-Gellenshaw, I walk in a room that is called the Black Pavilion. I was an engine, a system, a series of myelectric and neuromechanical components. And the accident responsible for this animal heart in lay two full lamures in the past. This morning was an anniversary of sorts. By now, I should have adjusted, and I had. I had reached a full accommodation with myself—narcissistic, one could say—which was the trouble. Dorian, Dorian Loka. The voice belonged to Comgalanditerets, wet and breathy, even though it came from metal speaker to which the sable drips of the dome were attached. I stared up into the ring of curtains. Dorian, it's target day. Answer, please. I'm here, my gallon. I rose, listening to the quasi musical ratcheting that I make when I move, a sound like the concatenation of tiny bells or the pouring of a stove car. The sound echoes through the porcelain plates, metal vertebrae. And asteroid, asteroid polymers holding me together, and no one else can hear it. Rumais here, Dorian. May she enter? If I grate, I suppose so. Damn it, Dorian! Don't feel you're bound by honor to see her. We've spent the last several brisk weeks preparing you to resume normal human contact. Diderot began to list drain treatments, hologramic substitution, stimulus response therapy. You ought to want Ramai to come in to see you. Dorian. Ought. My brain was and remains my own, but the body Diderot and the other carmagellants had given me had instincts and tropisms specific to itself ones whose templates had a mechanical instead of a biological origin. What I ought to feel, in human terms, and what I felt as the occupant of a total prosthesis resembled each other about as much as blood and oil. Do you want her to come in, Dorian? I do, and I did. After all the biochemical and psychiatric preparation, I wanted to witness my own reaction. Still sluggish from drug, I had no idea how Rumai's arrival would affect me. At a parting of the pavilion strip race, two or three meters from my couch, Rumai Monteith, my wife, appeared. Her garment of overlapping latex scales glossy black in color, was a hauberk revealing only her hands, face, and hair. Rumai's dress was one of Diderot's deceits, or preparations. He wanted me to see Rumai as little different from myself, a creature as well-assembled and as synapsed as the engine it had become. But her hands, face, and hair, well, nothing could disguise their primitive human humanity and revulsion swept over me like a tide. Dorian and her voice, wet, breath-driven, expelled through moistened lips. I turned away. No, I said to the speaker overhead. It hasn't worked, Magellan. Every part of me cries out against this. Diderot said nothing. Was he still out there? Or had he tried to bestow on Rumai and me a privacy I didn't want? Dissemble me, I urged him. Link me to the control systems of a Delta State vessel and let me go out from Mirost for good. You don't want a zombat among you, Diderot, an unhappy emperors. You are all tormenting me. And you, us, Rumai said. I faced her. As you're very aware, Dorian, as you're w- very aware, take my hand. No. I didn't shrink away. I merely refused. Here, take it. Fighting my disgust, I seized her hand, twisted it over, and showed her its back. Look. I see it, Dorian. I was hurting her. Surfaces, that's all you see. Look at this fin. I pinched the growth. That's sebum, fatty matter. And the smell, if only you could... Rumai drew back, and I sought to quell a mental nausea almost as profound as my regret. To venture out from Mirost seemed the only answer. Around me, I wanted machinery, thrumming machinery, and the sterile, actinic emptiness of vacuum. I wanted to become the probe ship Dorin Lorca, a clear step up from my position as prince consort to the governor of Mirost. Let me out! Rumai commanded the head of the port, Iranani, Galanchal, and Didorus released her from the pavilion. Again, I dwelt alone in one of the few private chambers of a surgical complex given over to adapting civic corps personnel to our leprotic planet's field-filled mineshafts. The galantial was also used to patch up these civ- civ- kits after the implanted respirators had atrophied almost beyond saving the muscles of their chests and lungs including administrative personnel, fleet officials, and the civic corps workers in the mines. Over half a million people lived on Mirost in the year of which I write. Diderot answered for the health of all those not assigned to the outlying territories. Had I not been the husband of Mirost's first governor, he might have let me die among with the 17 expendables on tour with me in the Fenay district when the roof of the Haft-Pakar diggings collapsed. But Rumai had made Diderot's duty plain to him, and I am as I am because we had the resources in Port Irinani, and Diderot obeyed his governor. Along in my pavilion, I lifted my hand and heard a crawling of minute copper bells. Nearly a month later, I observed by close circuit TV Rumai, Dideritz, and a stranger who sat in a galantial conference room. This strange woman, bald but for a scalp lock, wore goat silk pantaloons that gave her a clownish appearance, and a corrugated green jacket that oddly reversed that impression. Even on my monitor, I could see thick sunlight spilling into their room. This is Word's Kifa, Rumai told me. I greeted her through a microphone and tested the cosmetic work of Diderot's associates by trying to smile. She's from Earth, Dor, and she came because come Gal and and I asked her to. Forty-six lights, I said, touched and angry at the same time. To be constantly the focus of your friends' attentions, especially when they have more urgent business, leads to either a corrosive cynicism or a self-effacing humility, just as crippling. We'd like you to go back with her on Nisami when it leaves here tomorrow night, Dideret said. Why? Kifa came all this way to talk with us, Rumai said. As a final stage in your therapy, she'd like you to visit her establishment on Earth. And if this fails, Dora, I give you up. If that's all what you want, I relinquish you. Today, Rumai wore a yellow serum and a nun's hood of red and orange stripes. Speaking, she averted her eyes from the monitors to stare out the high windows instead. I could not help admiring the spare aesthetics of her profile. Establishment? What sort of establishment? I studied the tiny words, but her appearance yielded nothing. The house of compassionate sharers, Diderot said. It lies in Earth's western hemisphere, in North America, 200 kilometers southwest of the gutted urban nucleus of Denver. One reaches it from Monito Port by rail. Good. "'I'll have no trouble getting there. "'But what is this mysterious house?' Wardress Kiffa spoke. "'I'd prefer that you discover its nature "'and purposes from me, Mr. Lorca, "'when we've arrived safely under its several roofs.' "'Is it a brothel?' "'This question fell among my interlocutors like a stone.' "'No,' Rumai said at length. It's a unique clinic for the treatment of unique emotional disorders. She glanced at the wardress, concerned that she said too much. Some call it a brothel, Wardress Kifa admitted huskily. Earth has become a heaven of misfits and opportunists, a crossroads of galactic calm influence and trade. The house wouldn't prosper catering only to those who experience rare dissociations of feeling. Hence, a few of those who frequent the house are commothers, rich in power, and finicky in their tastes. But I view them as exceptions. Governor Montith, come Gallen ditterts. they represent a compromise that I make to carry out the work for which we first built the house. A moment later, Rumai said, "'You're going, Dor, tomorrow night. "'Ditoris and I will see you in 3 e-months.' She threw on her cloak and departed. "'Goodbye, Dorin,' Ditoris said, standing. Where keen glance felt oddly disconcerting. "'Tomorrow, then.' "'Tomorrow. Are you great?' In my monitor, the gal and the wardress exited the conference room together. In its high windows, Miros son sun sun and upper pe- capella in a lemon sky. I had a private berth on this hammie. I used my nights because sleep no longer meant a thing to me, to prowl through the compartments of shipboard machinery not forbidden to passengers. Although I couldn't enter the command module, I could, the computer-ringed observation turret and a few corridors of auxiliary equipment necessary to maintaining a continuous probe field. In these places, I pondered the likelihood of an encephalic neural connection to one of Comfey's interstellar frigates. My body was a trial. Dideris had long ago told me that. It that I was still sexually viable. But this promise I had not tested, nor did I wish to. Tyrannized by vivid images of human viscera, human excreta, human decay, had been rebuilt of metal, porcelain, and plastic, as if from the substances, skin, bone, hair, cartilage, that these inorganic materials mocked. I was a contradiction, a quasi-immortal masquerading as one of the f- ephemeral who delivered me from their own short-lived lot. Paradoxically, my aversion to the organic was another human, that's to say, organic emotion. So I fervently vaunted out. For over a year and a half on the rust, I'd hoped that Rumai and the others would see their mistake and exile me not only from themselves, but also from the body continuously reminding me of my total estrangement. But Rumai persisted in her love, and I had lived a prisoner in a poor Iranani gallant show with one chilling respite ever since the Haft Pekar explosion and cave in. Now, entering the care of a new Wurges, I brooded amid the animal encased engines of Nizhami and wondered what sort of jail the House of Compassionate Sharers would prove. A passenger of a monorail car bound upward from Manito port, where just in the window seat beside me, I still brooded, anthropophobia, Lorca, I told myself, exercise self-control, and I did. From Manitoport Port, we rode the sleek bullet through Rakht's sparsely inhabited country toward Wolf Run Summit and a state saying. You've never been home before? Rodress Kifa asked. No, Earth isn't home. I was born on GK World Daihan, Rodress. As a young man, I traveled as an administrative colonist to Mirost, where. where you were born again, she said. But this is where we began. The shadows of the mountains slid across the wraparound window glass. And the imposing white pylons of the moral world system flashed past like the legs of giants. Like huge naked cyborgs hiding amid aspens and pines. Where I met Romai Motif, I was going to say, where I wet... And settled into the life of a bureaucrat married to power. You anticipate me, Worges. I didn't add that now Earth and Mirast were equally alien. The probe ship Nizami had bid fair to assume first place among my loyalties. A rail from warfront swept past us toward Manito Port. The sight pleased me. The hum of the passing rill lingered sympathetically in my hearing, and I refused to talk. Even though the words obviously wanted to draw me out about my prior life, I was surrounded and beset. Surely she'd learn all that she needed to know from Dideris and Romyne. My annoyance grow. You're silent, Mr. Loka. I have no innate hatred of silences. Nor do I, Mr. Loka, unless they're empty ones. Hands in lap, humming like a bioelectric, I studied my guardian disdainfully. There are some who can't engage in a silence without peeling it off its unspoken fright of meaning. The woman laughed. That certainly isn't true of you, isn't it? A wry expression on her lips, She gazed at the hurtling countryside and said nothing else until we disembarked at Wolfram Summit. fleet officers and members of the administrative hierarchy frequented the resort in Manitoport. Civic Corps' personnel had built gingerbread shuttle among the trees and engineered two of the slopes above the hamlet for year-long skiing. Many of these people were just Kifa explained, indicating a crowd beneath the deck of Wolfran's main lodge. Work inside Shays Mountain, near the light Proport, port, in facilities built originally for satellite tracking and missile launch detection. Now they monitor display boards for complete orbiters and shuttles. They program cruising and descent lanes. Others are demographic and wildlife managers set on resettling earth as efficiently as possible. Tedious work, Mr. Loka, so they come here to play. We passed below the lodge on a path of unglazed visual form. Some of bounded bundled visitors stared at me. Maybe because in my tunic thieves I was under, undaunted by the spring gold coat. Or maybe they stared at my garden. How many of those people patronize your house, Burgess? Forgive me, I can't divulge that. But she glanced back as if she'd recognized someone. What did? What do they find in your house that they can't in Manitou Port? I don't know, Mr. Loka. I'm not a mind reader. To reach the House of Compassionate Sheriffs from Wolfran, we tracked on foot down a narrow path worked reverently into the flank of the mountain. Very nearly a two-hour hike. I couldn't credit distance or Wurgeskiffa's stamina. Swaying her arms, jolting along on stiff legs, she went determinedly down the mountain. We met no other hikers and finally arrived in a clearing giving us an open view of a steep, pine-filled glen, a grotto that, falling away beneath us, graded into a scream of smooth white sky, but the worges pointed down into the foliage. There, she said, the house of compassionate sheriffs. I saw nothing but sunlight gilding the aspens, boulders huddled in the mulch cover, and swaying tunnels among the trees. Squinting, I finally made out a geodesic structure built from the very materials of the woods. Like an upland slide, a wavering mirage, the house slipped in and out of my vision, blending, emerging, melting again, a series of irregular domes as hard to hold as water vapor. But after several red-winged blackbirds flow noisily past its highest turret, the house manifested Ban in stark relief. It's more noticeable, Wardus Kefa said, when someone cranks his shutters aside, then the stained glass windows sparkle like dragons eyes. I'd like to see that. Now it appears camouflaged. That's deliberate, mister Loka. Come. When at last, all the way down, I could see of what colossal size the house really was. It reared through the pine needles, holding the interlocking polygons to the sky. Strange to think that no one in a passing helicopter was likely to see it. Wajrus Kepha led me up from some plank stairs spoke at a door, and introduced me into an ante, ante chamber so spartan that I thought barracks rather than bordello. The ceilings and walls were honeycombed, and the natural flooring smelled of the outdoors. My guardian disappeared, returned coatless, and took me into a room like a tapered well. With a hand crank, she opened the shutters, very colored lights streamed in through slant set windows, on high cushions that snapped and rustled whenever we moved, we faced each other. What now? I asked. Just listen. The sharers have come here of their own volition, Mr Loka. Most lived and worked on extracom worlds toward Galactic Center before we asked them to work here. Those here accepted the invitation and came to offer themselves to people much like you. Me? Are they misconceived machines? Let's just say that the services the Sharers offer are white. As I've told you, a few visitants regard the Sharers as a convenient means of satisfying exotically aberrant tastes. For others, they are way back to the larger community we take whoever comes to us for help, so that the sheriffs do not remain idle or the whole house empty. If whoever comes with wealth and influence, she considered. That's true enough, but the matter is out of our hands. I'm an employee of Galacticom, chosen for my empathetic, empathic abilities. I don't make policy. I don't own title to the house. But you are its madam. It's wardress, rather. True. For the last 22 years, I'm the only wardress to have served here, Mr. Lorca. And I loved the sharers for their devotion to the fragile mentalities who visit them. Still, despite all my time here, I don't fully plumb the source of their transcendent concern. That's what I wanted to tell you. You think me a fragile mentality? I'm sorry, but you are here. And you're certainly unfragile of limb, are you? The word just left. I also wanted to ask you to, to restrain your crueler impulses when the treatment itself begins. I stood and moved away. How had I borne her presence for so long? Please don't take my request amiss. It isn't specifically personal. I make it of everyone who comes to the house. Restraint is an unwritten corollary of the only three rules we have here. Will you hear them? I shrugged gently. First, don't leave the session chamber once you've entered it. Second, emerge immediately upon my summons. And third... Don't kill the sharer. All the Marriott disgusts had been suppressing squatted now atop the ladder of my patience. And run by a painful rung, I stepped them back down. Master Ruby made to prevent a visitant from murdering the partner he'd brought. Incredible. The wardress was perceptibly sweating. Even her earlobes grotesquely agleam. Is there room here for a wealthy, influential client, a private room? Of course, she said. I will show you. It had a full-length mirror. I disrobed and stood before it. Only during my first period of adjustment on mirrors had I spent much time looking at what had become. Later, back in a poor Iranani Literus had denied me any sort of reflective surfaces at all. Looking-glasses, darkened windows, metal spoons, the waxen perfection of my features ridiculed really those that another Dorian Lorca had possessed before the Haft-Pekari incident. Cosmetic mockery, faintly corpse-like, Subs- spaciously paradigmatic. I was both a man and much less. In Ward's Kiffer's house, the less seemed preeminent. I ran a finger down my inner arm, studying the track of an intubated vein, for through it swirled a serum called hematocibin, a low-maintenance blood substitute, combative of both fatigue and infection which needs changing only once every six a.m. months. With a good supply of hematocybin and a plastic recirculator, I changed it myself. That night though, the ridge of my vein, mirrored an arm's length away, seemed more horror than miracle. Hence, horrified, I shut my eyes. Later, wardress Kifa came to me with a candle and embroidered gown. She made me don it before her, with the robe's rich symbolic embroidery on my back. I followed her from my first-floor chamber to a rustic stairwell, seemingly connective to all the rooms in the house. The dome contained many smaller domes and five or six staircases. No other person intruded. Lit by the wardress's taper. The House Smith interior put me in mind of an asterisk drawing in which verticals and horizontals treat places, and a figure who, from one vantage, seems to climb a series of steps from another seems to descend them. Soon the workers and I stood on landing above the topsy-turvy well of stairs, though more stairs loomed above. And looking down, I experienced an unsettling reversal of perspectives. Vertical. Why hadn't Deteris against so human a debility implanted tiny gyro-stabilizers in me? I clenched a reel and held on. You can fall, Wojcikfa said. It's an illusion, a whim of the architect's. Does an illusion dwell behind this door? Oh, the sheriff's is real enough. Please. Go in. She bowed and left, taking her candle. Then I went through the door to my assign- assignation, and the door locked off itself. My hand on the knob. I felt the night working in the chamber. The only light came from the stove bed on the far wall. The fitted polygons... Overhead still blanked out by their shutters. No candles anywhere; instead, reddish embers glowed behind an easing glass portal, beneath the quilt-strewn stove bed upon which the sheriff waited. Outside, the wind played harp music in the trees. I trembled, as when Romai had visited me in the pavilion. Even though my eyes adjusted, I still found it difficult to see. Temporizing, I surveyed the dome. In this vault dangled a cage in which, perturbed by my entrance, a bird skittishly hopping, hopped about. The cage rocked on as tether. Go on, I told myself. I advanced to the dais and leaned over the unmoving sheriff a hand on either side of his head, I braced myself. The figure moved, weakly, and I drew back. But because the chair didn't stir again, I reassumed my previous stance, the posture of a lover or of one called upon to identify a mangled corpse. But I made no identification. The embers under the bed offered too feeble a sheen, in such darkness even a lover's kiss would have fallen amiss. I'm going to touch you, I said, may I? The sharer lay still. Then, wheeling all my senses into the synthetic flesh at my fingertip, I touched the sharer's face, hard and smooth and cool. I moved my finger from side to side and the hardness, smoothness, coolness continued to flow the object fell like a death's head, the cranial cap of a human being, bone rather than metal. My finger distinguished between these possibilities, deciding on bone. Half panicked, I reasoned that i traced trace an arc on the skull of an intelligent being who bore his every bone on the outside, like an armor of calcium. If so, how could this organism... This thing expressed compassion. I lifted a finger, its tip hummed with a pressure now relieved, emanating warmth, a living that death's head. Maybe I laughed. In any case, I bordered the platform and straddled the Shara. My eyes gently closed. Shara, I whispered. I don't know you yet. My thumbs touched the creature's eyes, the sockets in the smooth exoskeleton. Both thumbs returned to me a hardness and a coldness clearly metallic in in origin. The sherry never flinched, though I assumed that touching his eyes, however softly, would provoke an involuntary reaction. Instead, the sherry lay still. And why not? I thought. Your eyes are two sophisticated optical machines. Yes, two light-sensing image-integrating units gazed at me from the sockets near which my thumbs probed. And even in its darkness, the sharer, its vision sharper than my own, could discern my blind face staring down, futilely trying to create an image out of the information that my hands had supplied. I opened my eyes and saw only shadows, but my thumbs felt the cold metal rings gripping the sheriff's photosensitive orbs. An animatronic construct, I said, rocking back on my heels, a soulless robot. Move your head if I'm right. The sheriff continued motionless. All right, a sentient creature whose eyes have been replaced with an artificial system. Lord, are we brothers, then? I had a sudden hunch that the sharer was very old, a sensitive being owning its life to prosthetics, transplants, organs of laminated silicon. Its life had been extended by these gizmos, not saved. I asked the sharer about this hunch. It slowly moved a helmet-like skull housing its thick eyes and its aged, compassionate mind. Uncharitably, I consider myself the victim of a deception. The Sharers, or Virgis Kephas, here, after all, lay a creature who had chosen to prolong its life rather than escape it, and who had willingly employed the same materials and methods that Didorus had used to save me. You might have died, I told it. Go too far with these contrivances, Sharer, and you will forfeit suicide as an option. Leaning forward again, I let my hands move from the sheriff's bony face to his throat. Here, a shield of cartilage grated upward into his jaw and downward into the silken plastic skin covering his body. Internalizing all but the defiant skull, a death's head with the body of a man. I could take no more. I rose from the stove bed cinched my gown and crossed to the room's far side. It held no furniture by the bed, so I assumed a lotus position on the floor and sat, th- through, sat thus all night, starving of dreams. Diderot had said that I needed to dream to sidestep both hallucination and madness. In a poor Iranian, Iranani galantial, he had had drugs and drugs, administered to me every day and my sleep period monitored by an ARC machine and a team of electroencephalographers. But my dreams veered into nightmares, descends into click-lit channeled houses. I I infinitely prefer the risk of going psychotic. Someone might pity and then disassemble me, piece by loving piece. Also, I had now lasted 2 ye year-weeks for nothing but catnaps, and I still had grey matter upstairs, not chopped pâté. I crossed my fingers. A long time later, Kifa throw open the door. Morning. The freshly canted shutters outside the room admitted a singular roaring of light. The entire chamber crackled, and crimson wall hangings. A mosaic of red and purple stones on floor, and a tumble of scarlet quilts glowed within it. The bird in a warbly cage was a red-winged blackbird. Where is it from? you could use a kinder pronoun he she which is kinder which is kiffa assumed share a masculine mr Lorca. my sexual proclivities have never run that way your sexual proclivities matter only if you regard the house as a brothel rather than a clinic And the sharer as horse rather than therapists. Last night, I heard two or three people clomping up the stair in their boots. That and a woman's raucous laughter. A client, Mr. Loka, not a sharer. I didn't think she was a sharer. But it's hard to believe I'm in a clinic when that sort of noise intrudes. I've explained that, it can't be helped. Okay, where's he from then, that therapist of mine? An interior star, but where he's from is of no consequence in your treatment. I matched him to your knees as I see them, and you'll soon go back to him. To spend another night squatting on the floor? You won't do that again, Mr. Lorca, and you needn't worry. Your reaction parallels that of many newcomers to the house. Revulsion? Revulsion's therapeutic? I don't think you were as put off as you contend. Oh, why not? Because you talked to the sheriff, You addressed him. Not once, but several times. Many clients fail to get that far during their first session. Talk to him? I considered this. Maybe before I found out who he was. Ah, before you found out what he was, in her heavy green jacket and swishy pantaloons, the tiny woman turned and left.